Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Ralph Carhart about his book, The Hall Ball, One Man's Journey to Unite Cooperstown Immortals with a Single Baseball. Ralph is a frequent contributor to Sabre Publications, and this is his first book. Ralph, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. I wonder if you could start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. Um, well, uh, I uh, professionally, um, I am a theater director and manager. I've been doing that for about 25 years now. And um, I, uh, I grew up upstate. Uh, I moved to New York City about, oh gosh, close to 25 years ago now. Um, it's qu- amazing how quickly time goes by. Um, and I grew up. Yeah. Uh, I grew up a Yankees fan. I was a. Um, uh, my father was a Yankees fan, so I grew up a Yankees fan um, until I hit puberty, when two things happened simultaneously. Um, I, uh, I, the Mets got good, and I had to reject everything my father stood for. So, uh, so I became a Mets fan around 1984, <laughs> um, and. Uh, I now uh, teach at Queens College in Flushing uh, Theater there, and, and it's a, the college is only 10 minutes from City Field. So I, I chose well as a youth um, to, to make it easy for me to catch a game after work. <laughs> That's funny. Um, by the way, both of my parents graduated from Queens College. So Did they? Uh, it's amazing how many yeah. people graduated from Queens College. It's, it, 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 there just seemed to be everywhere. It's fascinating. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, they went to college, I guess, uh, late sixties, early seventies. And it was, it was essentially free. I mean, they paid like nothing to go there. Yeah. It was free until the mid seventies. And then the city started charging all CUNYs were until the mid seventies. And then the city started charging tuition. Incredible. Um, so Ralph, this book is is an account of a, really a, oh yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, <laughs> the, um, so getting to your book, this book is really a really unique and interesting project that you set out on. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about the, the basic idea behind the book? Um, the idea for the book was formed in the summer of 2010. Uh, my wife and I were on a, a visit to Cooperstown, uh, where we go frequently. We're actually going this weekend. It's the first time we've left our home really since um, March. Um, and we're going to go camping up in Cooperstown. Uh, and um, we were there that particular time. Uh, and we were doing a, some family tree research. We're genealogists, my wife and I, and we were doing some family tree research. And while we were there, um, uh, in pursuit of that, we stopped by a cemetery that's located um, right next to the lake. And my wife found in the cemetery, the gravestone of Abner Doubleday. Now it's not the mythological creator of baseball, Abner Doubleday. This actually turned out to be his grandfather. Um, but, but seeing that name written on stone in a cemetery sort of sparked an idea for me as to what it would take to go and visit all of the graves of the members of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Where were they buried? How, you know, what, what were the, the circumstances that led them to being where they were? Uh, um, what kind of an adventure would that be? And, and I, I decided I wanted to do that. Um, but I, I quickly discovered that there were other people who had already done that. Uh, and I wanted to do something different. So the idea that I came up with was that I was going to take a baseball to all of these graves with me. And I was going to take a picture of the ball at the graves of all the members of the Hall of Fame. And very early in the process, I decided, why stop with the guys who are no longer alive? Why not? bringing the ball to all of them. And, and that's what I did. I brought the baseball to all of the members of the Baseball Hall of Fame, living and deceased. And I took a picture of them holding the ball, um, or if they were no longer alive, the ball at their grave. And and just for, for the benefit of our listeners, can you uh, give them a sense of numbers? How many... How many uh, deceased members of the Baseball Hall of Fame there are and how many living members of the Baseball Hall of Fame there are? Um, I called the project quits um, with the class of 2018. So as of 2018, uh, there were 323 members of the hall. I believe I got 247 of um, the ones who were deceased and, and all of the rest were the living players, whatever that math is, 74, 75, something like that, living players. Um, over the course of those eight years, I started in August of 2010, um, by visiting um, the grave of the Hall of Famer who lived closest to me uh, at the time I was living on Staten Island. And the Hall of Famer buried closest to me was uh, Saul White, uh, who uh, was a very old-time uh, Negro Leagues player before there were really even Negro Leagues. Saul played so long ago that uh, baseball wasn't segregated yet. He, he, was still, he played on um, multiracial teams. Um, but he was buried very close to my home. I began with him in August of 2010. And um, the, the final picture that I took, um, well, really the final one was Chipper Jones um, during induction weekend of 2018. There's a little coda um, right after I finished the project and said that the project was done. Um, 
Willie McCovey, who I had not managed to photograph while he was still alive. There are a small handful. There were five um, members of, the, of those 323 that I did not photograph. And, and one was Willie McCovey. Um, so after he passed, I was actually out in California and I took the ball to Willie McCovey in July of 2019 and took that picture. So if you count the, the little coda of Willie McCovey, uh, the project stretched from uh, August 2010 to uh, July 2019. Wow. Um, okay, a couple logistical questions for you. How many, because sure. for our reader, for our listeners, uh, the, way, the way Ralph set this up was uh, he has kind of little individual chapters on the different states that he visited. Um, so, Ralph, I want to ask you, how many states did you cover and did you typically do your traveling alone or with others or a mixture? Um, I went to 34 states, uh, one U.S. territory. I went to Puerto Rico for one photo and I went to Cuba. I actually ended up having to go to Cuba twice because of um, a, a fascinating story that, that's in the book. Um, so, you know, I had a, a lot of uh, a lot of different places that I needed to go. Um, and uh, sorry, what was the second part of the question? How many places I went? And uh, did you t uh, did you typically travel oh, to these places travel? alone? Right, right, or? right. right. Uh, and um, the my accompaniment was um, varied. Sometimes I went on the trips alone. Um, my wife and I have two kids, and you know, there's school and responsibilities and and things that need to happen uh, at home. Uh, I have an amazing wife, one of the most supportive human beings. I mean, if you stop and think about it, this project's a little, it's a little on the weird side. Um, but my wife has <laughs> believed in it from the very beginning. Uh, and she, you know, took care of the kids so that I could do some of this travel. Um, but when we could, we took family vacations as well. Um, you know, I went to Cuba alone, but I, I brought everybody to Hawaii. There's one Hall of Famer buried in Hawaii. And we, uh, we had a, a, a big family trip. Um, for that one in particular. So it, it varied on which ones I was going to and what I was doing. You know, part of it too is that there was a lot of, uh, you know, we spent a lot of family vacations over those eight years uh, going and visiting dead ball players. So I tried to make sure that the ones that the families were with me on, that there was always something else to do for them. You know, I wanted it to be a fun experience for the kids too. So, Sure. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's talk a little bit about cemeteries. I, I didn't, I never expected to say that on a podcast, but here we go. Um, <laughs> did you, did you have a favorite cemetery? <laughs> did, did you have a famous, uh, favorite um, cemetery? And, uh, and also w was there one or two graves that you found particularly interesting? Uh, yes. And two of the, I can answer both halves of that question almost in one, almost. Um, Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn is perhaps one of, uh, the most historic cemeteries in the country. It, it, you know, it was really the first one that, um, was, it sort of set the model for the urban park. Uh, um, you know, it, it existed before Central Park, it existed before, uh, Prospect Park. Um, it was meant to be a place where where people went and and picnicked and enjoyed themselves, which is what it was when it when it was founded. Um, in addition to being a cemetery, um, it, it, there's something special about that place. And the 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 Hall of Famer who's buried there is a writer by the name of Henry Chadwick, 
um, Chadwick is, is the only, um, member of the hall of fame itself, uh, who is a writer. There's a, you know, there's the award that the hall of fame gives away every year to a writer, but Chadwick is in, is actually a member of the hall of fame. Um, and you know, for your listeners who don't know, Chadwick was a, uh, sort of a founder in the game. He was a British writer in the 19th century who helped popularize the game uh, in the papers, uh, which is how the game grew from this little hobby of these various clubs to becoming an institution and, an, and, a, and a professional business. Uh, he invented the box score. We had the box score because of Henry Chadwick. Uh, so um, I, I've always loved Chadwick and his story, and his grave is, is incredible. Um, it, there's an obelisk that stands in the center of it, that has a, a giant large baseball on it. But what's really awesome about it is, you know, uh, most cemetery plots are rectangular. Um, his plot, the lines of his plot are um, made out like base paths. And at the individual corners, um, there is uh, four bases. And they even have the incredible little um, 19th century, early 20th century detail of um, the little belts that tied the bases down to the ground so that they didn't fly away when the guy slid into them. Um, it's, it's just this joyous celebration of the game in a way that no, almost no one else's grave is. Um, I don't know, however, if I would want to be buried at um, Greenwood myself, only because um, uh, I, there was one other cemetery that was the polar opposite of Greenwood. That was just such an awe-inspiring experience. Um, Archie Vaughn is buried in a town called the Eagleville, California, in the Northeast California, uh, very Northeast California, six hours from San Francisco and essentially six hours from Boise, Idaho, which was the, the drive I was making that day. I went from San Francisco to Eagleville to Boise. Uh, to get up to, to Payette, Idaho, where Harmon Killebrew is buried. But Archie Vaughn is buried in Eagleville, California, in a very small cemetery. There's no big elaborate graves or monuments to baseball or anything like that there. Um, it's just an open patch of land. Um, but it is the most remote and beautiful place um, I think I've ever been in the United States. Um, <clears throat> there's this incredible view of a mountain range behind it. That's just breathtaking. And the town of Eagleville has a population of, I think, 23. And, um, I'm a, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a hermit myself, quite honestly. Um, so I, I could see me spending my, my senior years in a town with a population of 23. Wow. 23 is, <laughs> Wow. Um, I, you know, having lived in New York city for a long time, that's, that's mind blowing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I, you know, <laughs> it's a different world. <laughs> so you, you talk in the book, uh, you know, there are certain graves that you visit that you, you mention um, have certain memorabilia um, left, you know, at the grave, the most common thing seem to be baseballs. Mm -hmm. um, was there, was there one or two in particular that, that, seem to have the most visitors? Um, well, the Babe, for sure. There was always... Mm -hmm. um, I visited the Babe uh, twice over the course of the project. I reshot the photo a second time. Um, and both times, there was a whole new pile of stuff uh, that people had left. I, I learned later that um, on occasion, 
Uh, Babe has a museum down in Baltimore where he where he grew up as a kid. And on occasion, that museum will drive up to uh, Westchester where Babe is buried and they'll collect the things that are left at his grave and they bring them back to the museum. Um, Babe definitely had a lot. Um, one who had a, a lot um, but wasn't a Hall of Famer. He was, he was en route. I was going from um, Ty Cobb in, in Georgia to uh, a symbolic location to take a picture of Tom Yawkey in South Carolina. And on the way, I stopped in Greenville, and that's the home of Shoeless Joe Jackson. So while I was there, I went to Shoeless Joe's mm. grave, and his grave was covered in baseballs and bats and uh, shoes. Um, it was it, really the babe is the only one that I think I remember that had as much stuff left as Shoeless Joe Jackson. Wow. Um, I, I, I really enjoyed the part about the babe um, when you went to his grade because I'm, I'm a Yankee fan. I grew up a Yankee fan and it's like a little uh, Yankee village there with I, I remember the babe is there. And then Lou Gehrig was I think it was actually an adjoining cer- uh, uh, cemetery and uh, Billy Martin and a few others. Can you talk about that little Yankee area over there? Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's some pretty sacred space for Yankee fans. Um, Babe is buried in Gates of Heaven, uh, which is uh, in Hawthorne, New York. It's right, uh, right next to Babe, within a hundred yards of Babe. This was this was requested by him. He he wanted to be buried there. Was Billy Martin? Uh, so you've got the two of them there. And then yes, there's an adjoining cemetery, Kensico Cemetery, which actually used to have all of that land. They sold Kensico sold a a portion of their land to gates of heaven, a, a separate business. Um, so, so now there are two separate cemeteries, but at one point they were, they were all belong to, to Kensico and Kensico in particular, I do tours at Kensico. There, there are so many, uh, important people from, uh, sports history in general, but baseball in particular. And yeah, Lou Gehrig is buried there. Um, uh, uh, Ed Barrow is uh, um, right next, uh, right nearby. Jacob Rupert is buried there. Um, you know, the guy who used to sing the Star Spangled Banner at uh, Robert Merrill, the guy who used to sing the Star Spangled Banner at important Yankee games like the World Series and stuff like that. He's buried there. Um, there is a lot of Yankee history in um, that, those two cemeteries. It's, it really is a sacred space for Yankee fans. Um, this is an interesting transition going from Yankee fans to, uh, 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 Boston Red Sox. Great. But I'm sure a lot of our listeners are wonder listeners are wondering, um, did you, I know the answer to this, but did you go to the cryogenic <laughs> center where Ted Williams is frozen? And could you talk about that a little bit? Uh, I did, I did. And you could too, if you want to, um, they are a business and they're trying to sell their product and they're more than happy. Um, to give you a tour of their facility. And the final stop on the tour is a look through a glass window. It's a little conference room with a glass window at the end that if you look through, you can see the doers, the giant metal tanks that they put the cryogenically frozen individuals inside of. And um, you don't know which tank Ted is in. Um, they, they Because of privacy concerns, they're very, um, you know, uh, um, they, they don't, they, they try to not make a circus out of the fact that Ted is there. They don't point out which one it is. There's not lights and whistles. 
Um, so I don't know specifically which one in my photo is Ted, but he's one of them. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was a singular experience. I'm, you know, I, as someone who clearly, um, <laughs> enjoys something that most people find a little, um, weird and creepy, you know, most people are, are creeped out by cemeteries. I get, uh, you know, I get a tremendous peace and pleasure from visiting cemeteries. I find them these quiet little respites from the world. You know, I do live in New York city and the ability to go to this quiet little park like, um, Greenwood, which is nowhere near as busy as a place like, uh, Central Park is. Um, is is a treat to me. But I uh, was a little creeped out by that tour. I have to be honest. It's, um, they are, they <laughs> very fervently believe, um, they believe uh, hard in their product and what they're selling. And it's, um, it's a fascinating thing to witness. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Okay, so you've, 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 you've referenced that some people get a little freaked out by cemeteries and, and, you know, you even referred to your project as some people might think it's weird. So I have to ask, and you allude to this in the book with certain people, what, what were some of the best or funniest or craziest reactions you got when you told people about this project? Well, regular people almost universally were supportive. I got a lot of people who thought that it was a really cool and fun idea and they wish they'd thought of it and they wish they could go on it because I think it is, you know, for a baseball fan, it is in a certain way, kind of a, a dream trip, right? It's the closest you're going to get to meeting all your heroes. You know, very few of us, you know, the Hall of Famers sort of represent the pantheon of, of greats for us. And I was able to connect, you know, with all of them over the course of this trip. So, so for regular folks, it, it was almost universally uh, uh, appreciated. The Hall of Famers themselves were a different matter sometimes. Um, there, there, <laughs> were, there were some of them who thought it was fun. Uh, Wade Boggs thought it was fun. Jim Tomey gave me a really great response. Ernie Banks gave me a really great response. That was a very special interaction because um, I got to actually spend a little time with Ernie Banks. Most of these photos took like 30 seconds. I, I got them by going to baseball card shows and waiting in line uh, and asking the players if I can take their picture. Um, uh, Ernie Banks actually sat down and chatted with me for five minutes or so, uh, which was just... Um, 
awe-inspiring. You know, he's, he's a legend. Um, so, you know, there were great responses from the players and then there were others who weren't, who, who found it weird. Um, <laughs> uh, Tommy Lasorda, if you look at the Tommy <laughs> Lasorda picture in the book, um, Tommy Lasorda's look pretty much sums up his entire take on the project. Um, one of my um, favorite stories of the players who uh, found it odd is Don Sutton. Um, Mr. Sutton had heard me. He was doing a card show with another Hall of Famer. Uh, and he overheard me describing to the other Hall of Famer what the project was and what I was doing. Um, so Mr. Sutton knew in advance that I was coming for him. And he told the promoters of the baseball card show that he, he would not take the picture until he could give me a brief competency hearing. And he proceeded to ask me a bunch of questions uh, to make sure that um, I wasn't a squirrel, which I assume in Don Sutton speak uh, means uh, that I'm not nuts. And um, I must have convinced him in the end. He let me take the picture and he gave me a great smile for it. Um, but I got, you know, I got various and sundry reactions from the players themselves. Yeah. Wow. Um I wanted to ask you also, as you note in the book, there are 19 Hall of Famers who were cremated. And of course, uh, Roberto Clemente's body was never found after his tragic death. So you took what you called symbolic photos of them for the book. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, maybe give a couple of examples of, of the type of photos you chose to take for those individuals. Uh, sure. Um, the symbolic photos came out of the fact... <clears throat> <clears throat> Sorry about that. The symbolic photos came out of the fact that both Bill Veck um, and Mickey Cochran were cremated and had their ashes spread in Lake Michigan. Uh, that was on public record. That was uh, easy enough information to find out. And I, you know, it wasn't a big deal to go to Lake Michigan. My wife's family is from Chicago. We're out there all the time. Uh, so it was not a big deal for me to just take the ball to the shores of Lake Michigan and take that photo. Um, but that got me thinking about what I was going to do for the rest of the Hall of Famers who were cremated and didn't necessarily have their ashes spread in some public or known way. Um, I wanted to include them in the project. I didn't exactly know how right away. And eventually I came up with the idea of uh, creating what I called the uh, symbolic photo. Uh, of that Hall of Famer. And, and it varied. For some of them, you know, it was very straightforward. For Larry Doby, <clears throat> I went to uh, Larry Doby Park in New Jersey, uh, where there's a statue of Mr. Doby and took a picture of the ball at the statue. Um, for Phil Rizzuto, there is an old, um, there's a, a baseball field at um, the high school where he uh, lived uh, for the final a few decades of his life and he was a frequent supporter of the school and um, it's named Phil Rizzuto field. So I went and took a picture of the ball there. Um, so, you know, there were obvious ones like that. And then there were others that were, um, I, you know, a bit more creative. I, the trip to Puerto Rico was for Roberto Clemente. Uh, I took the ball to the location on the beach where the wreckage from the plane washed up. Uh, Cause that's the closest we could get to the final resting place of Roberto Clemente. Um, I, one of my favorites was umpire Al Barlick. Uh, Al got his start. Um, he, you know, he's the classic story right out of, you know, the, the mythology of baseball. He got his start in the mines. He, he worked for a mining company and, uh, umpired the company games. And, and that's how he 
sort of latched on to the profession. So I went to the last remaining physical structure in Springfield, Illinois, um, of the mine that Al Barlick worked at. Uh, I, I got some help from a, a gentleman in the Illinois Mines and Minerals Department uh, who helped me locate um, this last remaining piece of that mine where Barlick worked. And I, I took a picture of the ball at that mine. So, you know, the, the inspirations for the symbolic ones were varied. Some of them were not as interesting as others. You know, you can only go to the well so many times. Um, but some of them, I think, were quite clever and quite fun. That Tom Yawkey one um, that I, I went to, uh, you know, when I drove through Joe Jackson there, um, I, Yawkey used to own a nature preserve off the coast of uh, South Carolina, Winya Bay, uh, South Carolina. And when he died, he left it to the state. So it's now a park where you can visit. Um, you have to make an appointment many months in advance. There's a ferry that goes over like three months of the year or something like that. They're doing their best to minimize the human interaction because it really is meant to be a nature preserve. Um, so I didn't get onto the island itself, but I, I went to uh, the ferry where um, you, you went over. And I got this amazing picture of the ball there in the water. Uh, near the water uh, um, with this crane in the background and a boat going by. It's, it's the nicest picture in, in the whole um, project. And, and it's, oh, it's so random. It's just this, you know, there's, there's a body of water. Like there's nothing that says baseball about that particular location in that particular place, but it, it really created one of the prettiest photos. Right. Um, on to the, uh, the Living Hall of Famers a little bit. Um, you, you talked about uh, Ernie Banks a little. Was there one or two Hall of Famers in particular that you were just completely awestruck in their presence? Um, awestruck. Uh, the one that was probably um, the toughest for me, or, or I guess I was the most nervous about taking, um, was uh, Mike Piazza. Uh, I, am a Mets fan. Um, I'm a baseball fan at heart. Um, I tell people I'm a baseball fan first and a Mets fan second. Um, but Mike, Mike transcends for me, uh, beyond just being a Mets fan. Um, I, you know, I have been in New York city for 25 years and I was working at a theater, um, on September 11th. That was only 10 blocks away from the world trade center. Um, so that day, uh, and, and that, that experience, that week and, and change that followed and, and the months, frankly, that followed um, is indelible to me. And so, of course, uh, the home run that Mike Piazza hit on September 21st um, is I, I struggle to imagine a more important home run to me um, that could possibly happen in, in baseball. Like, you know, it, it could be a game seven walk off home run um for the Mets uh and it, I still don't think that that home run would have as much meaning to me as the home run that Mike Piazza hit so it, it's I was a little awestruck walking into that one but I will say that Mike has this amazing um I don't know energy he 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 just I relaxed as soon as I started speaking to him. Uh, he, he didn't make it a stressful situation in any way, shape or form. And, and he was totally game to let me take the picture and, and ended up being a wonderful experience. Um, I know it's funny. I've met some, you know, some true 11 legends. I met Yogi Berra. 
and you know uh, and ernie banks and and some other like you know big time names from the game's history but but mike piazza is the one that it meant the most to me meeting him uh you mentioned in the book that that you had a, a private meeting with joe torrey i believe he was the the lone hall of famer that you had a private audience with what was that like um, yeah, I, I had made friends with uh, someone who worked at Steiner Sports, which, you know, probably most of your Yankee fan friends know is the exclusive licensor for most of the Yankees, uh, including Joe Torre. Uh, so they had Joe coming in for a private signing. The, the guys do, you know, the baseball card shows where you can meet them on the floor. Um, but they'll also, the, the ones who are not as keen on meeting the fans, but are still interested in, you know, making the money that goes with, with signing stuff will arrange private signings. And that's what Joe Torrey did uh, with the folks at Steiner. And my connection there was kind enough to uh, get me in the room. And so I got to tell Joe the whole thing. And, uh, you know, was very, Joe was very kind. He gave me a good two, three minutes of his time. Um, it was, um, you know, it was, it was a great interaction. And it was the one time on the project where I didn't feel rushed. I always, it was important to me that I never made the players feel like I was wasting their time. I got my presentation to them down to this like nice tight 20 second uh, version of, uh, of an elevator pitch. Um, I always had my phone at the ready. I took my picture and I moved on. Um, you know, I, Joe gave me some time to actually tell the story and to chat with me a little bit about baseball. And, and I didn't feel rushed in that one. I felt like I, I, you know, I was supposed to be there doing the thing. Right. Uh, one thing I, w I wanted to ask you about, I found it very interesting. I'd never heard of this project before, uh, was the Negro Leagues Baseball Grave Marker Project. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Uh, yeah, I was introduced to them very early. Like I mentioned, the very first grave that I photographed was Saul White uh, on Staten Island. And Saul, when I got there, I discovered Saul didn't have a gravestone. Uh, his grave was unmarked. So I went home and I started doing some research and that's when I found this organization called the Negro Leagues Baseball Grave Marker Project. Uh, and it was started by a gentleman by uh, named Jeremy Crock and he's dedicated, uh, you know, I, I don't know when he started, I remember when he started, you know, but at this point he's, he's placed about 40 gravestones um, at the sites of the unmarked graves of guys who, you know, didn't necessarily have the means when they left to, to mark their stones. We have, you know, there is, there is a massive racial uh, uh, income inequality happening in this country now, and it has always been that way. Uh, so there were a, a large number of Negro Leaguers in general. And when I began the project, three Hall of Famers who did not have stones. Um, by the time I was done with the project, Jeremy had placed stones at those three graves, and they've got one now. Um, but it's, you know, it's tragically symbolic of the story of the Negro Leagues and the story of race in America that you have these great men who are um, lying under unmarked earth for so long. Yeah, it's wonderful what what the people with that project are doing. Yeah, for um, sure. I am, um, you know, I admire everything Jeremy's done greatly. He he actually inspired me. I have um, I, I created my own little grave marking committee um, as a uh, sort of inspired by Jeremy, 
where I mark the graves by uh, of 19th century baseball players. I have a particular fascination with the 19th century and the beginning of the game. If you uh, read the book, you'll see that that's, uh, that's apparent in, in the book itself. In each one of those chapters, you mentioned how each chapter is dedicated to a state. I talk about how professional baseball came to that state. When did people start playing uh, even uh, you know, before professionalism? When did baseball arrive there and how long did it take? And over the course of history, how many, um, you know, teams have, have called that state home? Um, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because, um, I want to note for our listeners that, uh, this book, this book is not just a picture, a picture book. Um, uh, of course, um, you know, Ralph talks about his quest to visit the different, Hall of Famers, in, in living and and dead, um, of course, and and the pictures he took of the Hall Ball in front with those Hall of Famers. Um, but as Ralph just alluded to, there's it's there's tremendous amount of information about the origins of the game in this book. I mean, I learned so much um, about the origins of the game, in, as Ralph said, in the different states, but also uh, you know he gives a, a very often very interesting synopsis on each Hall of Famer who he visits. And so, Ralph, I was wondering if you could um, talk a little bit about your research research process for the project, because it's clearly very well researched. Um, yeah, I actually, the book is a testament to what can be done online. It's, you know, for all of the travel that I did for the project, um, a lot of the resources for the book were online. I did spend a week in Cooperstown um, using the library that they have there, the incredible Bart Giamatti Research Library that's located at the Hall of Fame. Um, I was in there for a week pouring through all of their files, and they've got a file for just about everyone who's ever played the game, nonetheless, just the Hall of Famers. Um, so I, uh, I spent a week going through their stuff, but a lot of my research was based on a few select websites, which are, are fabulous tools that I'm, I'm happy to have an opportunity here to share with folks. Um, uh, the first is Protoball. Um, Protoball is a project that was created by Larry McRae, and, and his goal was to chronicle the games that were played in, in the United States and beyond um, that were either baseball games or, or in some cases, baseball-type games before 1871. Uh, 1871 is sort of the foundation of the first professional league. Um, so he set that as a, as a cutoff date. Um, so a lot of the information I have in the book about which games were played first in which state, you can find that information at Protoball, uh, which is, it, it's a Wikipedia type effort in that it's, you know, the information is user inputted. But I, you know, because the world of baseball historians is a pretty small world, I know most of the people who are doing the inputting. And, um, you know, these are, these are the best baseball researchers that we've got out there right now. So I, I have tremendous faith in their findings. Uh, so Protoball was a huge help. Um, also the Sabre Bio Project, the Society for American Baseball Research, um, has uh, this giant bio project they've been doing. They're attempting to write a biography of everyone who has ever played, coached, managed, scouted, um, you know, uh, think of some way in which you can be connected to the game and someone in, in Sabre is either um, working on writing their biography or trying to find someone to write that biography. 
uh, and they've already got thousands of entries. And so uh, I use them a lot um, for writing the little uh, tidbits uh, about the players. Um, another huge one for the um, uh, the Negro League stuff is um, at, at seamheads.com, there's the Negro Leagues database, uh, which is uh, Gary Ashwell's um, baby, um, which is pretty much the most comprehensive online collection of Negro League stats, which we all know are a little bit more elusive than um, Major League stats, just because there were not as many newspapers carrying the story. So it's, you know, the, we're learning that there is information out there for the Negro Leagues. It's just, you know, harder to find. Um, so that website was tremendously helpful in, 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 you know, sort of capturing the careers of of the Negro Leaguers. Um, I feel like I'm leaving one out. Who could it be? I don't know. Um, but you know, it's, it's amazing what the internet has made possible. And, you know, you could be a person who, um, is overwhelmed by the idea of walking into a library and searching through hundred year old newspapers and still be a decent researcher in this, in this day and age, if you know how to do, uh, you know, a Google search and you know, which resources are reliable. Right. Yeah, really, I agree. It's I, I could say from my own experience, it, it's remarkable what you can get online. <clears throat> um, mm-hmm. Well, Ralph, I've taken enough of your time. Uh, I'll ask you one final question that I like to ask all of my guests. Um, first, let me just say once again, the name of Ralph's book is The Hall Ball, One Man's Journey to Unite Cooperstown Immortals with a Single Baseball. And my final question for you, Ralph, is what is your all-time favorite sports book? My all-time favorite sports book, uh, Lawrence Ritter's The Glory of Their Times. Um, the way he perfectly captures um, the voices of these players from the dead ball era. Um, it's, um, it, it's one of the most influential books um, in baseball history. If, you, if only if you look at the number of guys who are in it who ultimately made their way into the Hall of Fame um, who probably would never have succeeded in doing that had they not appeared in Lawrence Ritter's book. Um, you know, uh, guys like Rube Marquard and, and Goose Goslin. It's um, it, it's incredible the influence that book has had, and 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 hearing those voices, you know, um, is uh, it's an incredible experience. It really reminds you of how you know close the history of the game really still is to us. All right. We'll have to check that one out. Um, well, Ralph, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast this evening. Uh, really enjoyed talking to you again. Ralph's book is the hall ball is, uh, it's unique. It's different. I mean, if you like baseball, you like baseball history. It's, it's a really cool way to examine it and, and see it up close and and, in a different perspective. And so I encourage everybody to go out and buy that. Um, so, Ralph, thank you very much. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate your time. Thanks. It was great being here. Okay. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.